This is a Rooster Teeth production. July 28, 1945. The USS Indianapolis set out from Guam after dropping off the components for the bomb dropped over Hiroshima. Two days later, the Indianapolis had sunk. A third of her crew was dead, and the rest of her crew clung desperately to lifeboats as the sharks circled. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Ahoy and welcome aboard Ship Hits the Fan, a podcast about some of history's most notable uh-ohs and whoopsies on the high seas. Get this. 1,100 men go into the water, right? Mm-hmm. Vessel went down in 12 minutes. It didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Sounds familiar. Tiger. 13-footer. And you know uh, how you know that when you're in the water, chief? <laughs> you tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. Yeah. What we didn't know uh, was our bomb mission had been so secret that no distress signal had been sent. This happened to you? You're saying this was something that happened to you? Yeah. I I remember it pretty clearly because, like, I remember you know, this 1100 from Jaws. men go into the water. Yeah. Oh, jo- I'm thinking of the movie Jaws. Right. I'm thinking of uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Okay. So this is part two of the Indianapolis, when it gets bad. And the last episode ended with uh, the extinguishing of 80 to 100,000 lives in an instant. Uh, so I guess that was worse Yeah. in the um, scheme of things. A lot of radiation, really uh, awful effects uh, to be felt for a long time by yeah. the nation of Japan. But this is also bad. This is also bad. It's <laughs> yeah. it's actually this many also bad horrifying. things happening. Yeah. But hey, you know what? Aside from that, this is also the season finale of season three of Ship Hits the Fan. Yeah. Woo! We did so it. We have some bonus we, uh, episodes. We 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 got there. We lost a man. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but we got there. Yeah. Uh, okay. So as we covered last week. The Indianapolis was one of the first heavily armored and heavily armed ships produced by the U.S. Navy during the interwar period. After serving as FDR's main water transport and contributing to a number of crucial battles in World War II, the Indianapolis was selected for a top-secret mission. That mission happened to be delivering components for the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Following their delivery of the components, the ship set out from Tinian to Guam where she picked up a relief crew. From Guam, she set off toward the Philippines for training, but she never arrived. Just after midnight on July 30th, two days after setting out from Guam, the Indianapolis, or Indy to her crew, was traveling at a speed of 17 knots. Unbeknownst to them, Japanese submarine I-58 was traveling in the same waters. The submarine was captained by Commander Mochitsura Hashimoto, who had actually been looking for battleship Idaho. Idaho was one of three ships classified as a New Mexico-class ship. New Mexico, Mississippi, and Idaho. The three ships were super dreadnought battleships built in the late 1910s for use in World War I. Heavily armed for the time, they often traveled at 21 knots and operated as a unit of three when possible. Again, continuing from last week. Dreadnought is an incredibly cool name for a Dreadnought is cool. A class of ships traveling in three is also very cool. And if you have access to a super dreadnought class battleship that you're looking to unload, I am in the market. Yeah. So um, it must be able to be operated by one man, though. And uh, yes, that, that too. <laughs> and even better if you're in the possession of all three super dreadnought uh, class battleships. Please drop us a line at Ship Hits Pod. Yes. Yeah. The three ships had been deployed to the Pacific early in the U.S. involvement in World War II, and had often fought alongside the Indianapolis in the Aleutian Island conflicts, and through most of 1944, they had been stationed in the Philippines. 
since the Indianapolis was currently en route to the Philippines and had often been spotted in tandem with the Idaho, Hashimoto's guess isn't that far off. It's important to take some time to talk about Japanese submarines. The Indianapolis had been outfitted with nearly every modern convenience, constantly won battles, and was considered stable and trustworthy enough to transport the war's most precious cargo. How then did the pride of the US's fleet not see the Japanese submarines coming? How indeed? Yeah. The Japanese have a pretty long history of using submarines. They acquired their first subs during the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. They were actually purchased from an American company called Electric Boat, and they were ready for use in battle by 1905. Shock me like an electric boat! <laughs> However, by that point, the Russo-Japanese War was almost over, and now they just had all these submarines and no war to use them in. But it is important to note that Electric Boat would also build submarines for the U.S. Navy in the coming years. It means that for a brief point in time, the Japanese and the Americans are using the same submarines, but not for long. Later that same year, the Kawasaki Dockyard Company purchased a version of these plans to begin building their own submarines. If you're wondering, hey, is this the same Kawasaki that makes motorcycles and jet skis? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure at some point Yamaha must have also uh, manufactured subs, right? Probably, yeah. I mean... Most of the most like auto manufacturers and all that stuff get in. Yeah, it's it's they just it's make everything. But you yeah, could also yeah. get a saxophone. Yes. From <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. These submarines were still smaller and not as heavily armed as their American counterparts, but they did the job and helped Japan survive World War One. That's the craziest thing. Yamaha, all yeah. manner of like motorsport things mm -hmm. and instruments, and across the board, pretty good. Yeah, well liked. Like you'd think, you'd think the. The dirt bike brand wouldn't make really good pianos, but no, they you would be wrong. They do. You yeah. would be incredibly <laughs> they make pretty wrong. good pianos. Yeah. I want make everything Yamaha. You know, try. try I think they already your hat do. In the round for throw your hat in the ring for I don't know game consoles. Yeah, why not the Yamaha box? Yeah. Following World War One, the German Navy was forced to give away portions of their submarine fleet as reparations, which is notable because the German Navy had been exceptionally skilled during the war. Japan received nine submarines from Germany as World War I reparations. This allowed Japan, and by extension, Kawasaki, to pull from new plans and make improvements to the submarine fleets in the interwar period. Yeah, if there was anyone whose sub-tech you wanted to have access it, to, emulate, it, it'd yeah. be the Germans. A hundred percent. Yeah. Especially, like, uh, Germany's like, we have these subs. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure we have to give them back. And then the island nation is like, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let me get that. <laughs> sure, uh, I can use this. <laughs> By World War II, the Japanese Navy had made tons of different kinds of submarines based on what they had learned from their early American subs and their newer German subs. They became a hub for submarine experimentation. They had everything from mini-subs to gigantic submarines like the Sentoku, a submarine able to carry multiple bombers like an aircraft carrier. Sick. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yep. They had submarines that were capable of the highest submerged speeds. They had one-man submarines that acted as manned torpedoes, killing the soldier piloting the craft, but inflicting massive amounts of damage. Terrifying. But most importantly, they had the most advanced torpedoes. They had developed an oxygen-fueled torpedo called Type 95. Type 95 torpedoes were based on a previous model called the Type 93, and they were actually designed to be smaller, but also faster. The goal was to create something similar to the U.S. Navy torpedo Mark 16, which ran on hydrogen peroxide. Of course. Oh, uh, yeah. Naturally. I don't need to tell you this. Yeah. 
Because of the different fuel type, the Mark 16 had a shorter range and was designed to be fired closer to its intended target at a high speed. It, we've come so far from the Hunley it, where they had that bomb and a long pole attached to the front of the submarine like, to poke it like a bear. Not that long. This is like a hundred years, not maybe. Not even? even. I think. Yeah, I guess this so. This is like 80 years later or something. It's, it's disconcerting. It's, so it's fast, really disconcerting. Yeah. Everything, like, the last 200 years... Have been a ride. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to the Mark 16, the Type 95 had been designed to be launched at three times the distance of the Mark 16 at the same speed. This made the Type 95 the fastest torpedo in any Navy in World War II, but also it could be fired from just outside the ranges of some instrument detection. Like a Yamaha clarinet. Exactly. When Hashimoto found himself within stealth striking distance of what he believed to be a giant U.S. super dreadnought with one of the fastest, deadliest torpedoes in the war, he took his shot. Twice. Oh, Hashimoto. Yeah. The submarine fired two Type 95 torpedoes at the ship and quickly set out in the opposite direction. The first torpedo blew the bow off the ship. If you remember from last week, the bow had been reinforced with five-inch thick panels of steel. They were no match for the torpedo. The impact also pushed the ship slightly off course. This exposed the midship, with considerably less paneling, to the second torpedo which struck dangerously close to the ship's powder magazine. The magazine ignited, causing the entire center of the ship to explode, oh. tearing the ship nearly in half. And you may remember the Indy was very top-heavy from all the guns that were added throughout the war. The ship tilted sharply and it began to sink within seconds. Oof. Boy. The initial impacts from the torpedoes and the resulting explosion killed over 300 men aboard the ship instantly. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's, that's a bad time for that to happen. The rest were now facing the tough decision of going down with the ship or taking their chances in the water. Water that was now coated in oil from the motor and gas tanks of the sinking ship. Oh, Christ. I mean gotta be better than being on the ship when it goes down i guess right uh yeah well maybe yeah. not in this case actually <laughs> but yeah the remaining 900 sailors grabbed onto anything they believed would float and abandoned ship 12 minutes after being struck by torpedoes the indianapolis was completely submerged leaving her crew with no way to call for help and slim chances of survival fearing that the submarines were still in the area and also that further explosions could kill the sailors in the water most of the crew swam away from the wreck, holding on to the few available life rafts and floating wreckage. And remember, the Indianapolis had been on a top secret mission. No one knew where they were. Yeah. <laughs> they did not yet. Yeah, they were out there by themselves. Uh, literally no one knew where they were, and they had not been able to use their radios because the ship exploded. Immediately went down. So they are just out there on their own. No one is looking for them. That That's... becomes important later. So scary. I'm terrified. Yeah. <laughs> but that's also what ship travel was for the majority of human existence. Long time. So, long time. You know, yeah. Yeah. And it's good, it's good business for us. Yeah, yeah, it is. Despite being almost entirely crewed by young men from the ages of 18 to 22, the sailors were struggling to swim and keep up with the current. Many of them were wounded, and some had already started to bleed out in the water. The crew collected into a handful of groups for safety, but as the sun dawned the next day, hundreds more had succumbed to the waves. Between the wreck and the injuries, 
Those who survived the night found themselves floating in a pool of oil, blood, and the bodies of their fellow sailors. Now, see, if you're unfamiliar with sea travel, uh, you mm -hmm. may not know that th you don't want this. Like, this yeah, is a, Typically, that's bad. Typically, if you find yeah. yourself in this situation, something has gone uh, terribly wrong. Yeah. Uh, really uh, all right. All yeah. right. All right. All right. There it is. Okay. Yeah. This combination attracted something even more dangerous. Sharks. Oh, and we've gotten to the meat of the episode. Yep. That's right. Being an archipelago, the Philippines have a number of sharks native to their surrounding oceans. Blue sharks, gray reef sharks, shortfin makos have all been spotted in the area, all of which have some recorded attacks on humans. But there are a few specific types of sharks suspected to be the culprits here. The oceanic white tip shark, which Jacques Cousteau said was the most dangerous, <laughs> for, okay. what that, for what it's worth, uh, lives offshore, and while they don't encounter humans often, when they do, it can be disastrous. Oh. Ah, ah, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> These sharks are typically the first to be seen in waters around shipwrecks and other ocean disasters. Mm. It's believed that this shark may have killed the bulk of pilots and sailors that found themselves in the waters of the Pacific. The great white, while occasionally seen in the waters surrounding the islands, is not a common threat, but bull sharks, on the other hand, are a completely different story. Bull sharks often hunt in pairs, but have also been known to hunt in large groups. Hmm. They have been called the most dangerous sharks to humans for a few reasons. Okay. Yeah. Number one, extremely aggressive and will attack without provocation. Okay, that feels like two things. <laughs> <laughs> While they don't seek out humans for food, tests in captivity have shown that they will attack humans out of curiosity or sometimes by accident mistaking them for food. I mean... In which case, I guess they become food. Yeah. Right? Not mistaking them at all, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think maybe they think it's a different type of food. Probably a seal. But then they get a sort. taste and they're like, eh, this is I fine. I guess this will work. Yeah. I can get through these, the buttons. It's not and great. Zippers and it's okay. The leathers. Yeah. Speaking of food, they will eat literally anything. Cool. Second, they have been known to... That's, that's, that's first. <laughs> uh, okay. Second, they have been known to migrate up rivers. Bull sharks have a unique ability to survive in both fresh and salt water. In America, they regularly travel up the Mississippi River, but they rarely attack people in fresh water. They're on vacation. You don't want to too mix busy, work and yeah, play. Too busy fighting gators. <laughs> yes, probably. Yeah. Which, if uh, anyone here has a, a lead on watching that happen, uh, get at us. <laughs> yeah. Bull shark gator fights. Yeah, yeah. Sounds I know it's probably shady sick. and a little under the table. We will not rat. I mean in nature, yeah. okay? Oh, I, I meant in oh, a game organized scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. an arena. A, I, a, a dry arena. Which for the sake of the show, I'm not interested in, but hit me up <laughs> if you have a line on that. Patrick's eyes are wide I've open. I've got the cash. I <laughs> he have the cash. He blinked in 45 seconds. <laughs> I have the cash and I'm willing to put it on the table. Yeah, hypothetically. Hypothetically, yeah, but I, I'll do it. I will do it. Right, yeah, he will do it. He'll, he will do anything. Yeah. Speaking of Patrick, he will do literally <laughs> anything. <laughs> As the currents continued to move, many of the groups of survivors spread out, often not knowing if they were the only group left with no other groups in sight. This might account for why some survivors have horrifying accounts of the sharks and some didn't see any sharks at all. I thought it was fine. Yeah, I had actually a pretty good time. For those who did encounter sharks, the next four days were a living nightmare. Oh my god. I'm very uneasy good way right to describe now. it. Yeah. The sharks started by grabbing the survivors who had floated away from the groups. This included sailors who had not found life vests and had grown exhausted from treading water, or men who were wounded and couldn't reach one of the survivor groups. 
Once the bulk of lone survivors had been attacked, the sharks got braver and started moving closer to the groups. We really, uh, man as a species is really not in our element in the water. Absolutely not. Uh, we're barely in our element on land we're without the use of tools. Babies. Yeah, we're when soft. put us in the water. <laughs> yeah. uh, we are helpless. Yeah, we can swim for like, like the best of us can tread water for like an hour. And yeah. then we drown. And our and our fastest swimmers top out pretty low. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's only impressive yeah, to a like, it's like when a baby crawls and everyone's like, wow. wow. And it's like the a deer this deer horse or whatever was born walking. Yeah, it came out standing. A whale which breathes air is born underwater and lives just fine. Yeah. <laughs> and figures it out. Okay, well I would say a whale and a baby, you know, they have different strengths. Sure, okay. sure. Let's, but a, let's, wait, let's, yes, a whale has strengths, a baby has none. <laughs> <laughs> this required the survivors to set up shark watches, where Whoa. survivors would take shifts fending off sharks in the water while the other survivors rested. It's just, this is hell. It's bad. Unfortunately, with these watches came the brutal task of cutting other survivors loose as they succumbed to their wounds. I mean, yeah, because at that point, you are attached to chum. Oh, yeah. 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 No, no, no. When they no, died, they had I to cut it. them loose from like, because these dudes are all like piled around flotation devices right. kind of and like hanging on to each other and like tied. They're yeah. like tied to whatever lifeboat that has like a few people in it, but can't fit anyone. Like it's it's a bad situation. So they're in like these clusters. And when someone dies, they have to cut them loose from this. Right. Probably take their life jacket to give to someone else. Probably. Yeah. And then Kick push them, them away yeah. because it's like being out in the jungle with a pack of lions covered in steak otherwise. Or like being in shark infested waters with a bloody with a dead, dead body. Yeah. yeah. That also that metaphor also works for yeah. this situation. <laughs> that actually is extremely apt. Yeah. Some men were still trying to survive injuries from the explosion. Others had been bitten by sharks in the water before swimming to the safety of one of the groups. Regardless, their blood in the water would attract sharks, and if they died, sharks would swarm to try and eat the bodies. As they watched their friends and crew members die, they would have to cut their bodies loose and push them away from the group in the hopes that the sharks would target the body instead of the group of survivors. They would also try to push them far enough away that they would be out of sight of the remaining survivors. Terror was infectious among the groups, and the last thing any of them needed to see were their friends being eaten by sharks. It's bad for morale. Which... I mean, they saw. Yeah. <laughs> like, But it was the last thing they needed. I guess so. I don't know. I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in uh, karma. Sharks? Oh. <laughs> but this, this. These guys didn't even know what they were doing. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't think they deserved it. <laughs> I, don't think, I think all around no one who died in these situations last two episodes. It, yeah. yeah. The group survived for four and a half days at sea with no food, very little fresh water, explosion wounds, and shark bites. Because the ship had sunk before being able to radio its position, no one even knew that they had sunk. Like we said, very secret mission. Yes. <laughs> one of the most secret, maybe, no one ever was taken. Really looking for them. Yeah. It wasn't until August 2nd when two planes, one piloted by Lieutenant Wilbur Gwynn and his co pilot, Lieutenant Warren Colwell, and one piloted by Bill Kitchen spotted a cluster of survivors in the water during what should have been a routine patrol flight. They dropped a life raft and a radio transmitter to the sailors below. This allowed the survivors to radio positions and an account of the attack. 
all available planes and boats in the area were dispatched to the last known coordinates of those survivors. The first rescue craft on the scene was an amphibious patrol plane flown by Commander Robert Marks. They spotted the survivors and dropped multiple life rafts, but unfortunately the rafts were too far away for the crew to swim to after treading water for four whole days. Yeah. Your whole body is basically jelly at that point. Oh my god. Seeing that they couldn't get to the rafts, Commander Marks pulled his crew. They had been ordered not to land in the open ocean for fear of more Japanese submarines, but Marks and his crew agreed to land against orders. They were able to pick up 56 survivors. Because room in the plane was limited, once they had filled up the cargo and passenger areas, they tied men to the wings Bro, with paracord. Don't do that. Well, they didn't fly it. Oh. Yeah, the aircraft was unflyable as a result. Oh, oh yeah. okay. But... But it's a floating, but, yeah. it's like a floating thing at least that like people are on and not in shark water. That's true. As night fell, other rescue ships arrived and loaded up the men waiting on Mark's plane. Following the rescue, the plane was sunk as tying men to the wings had made it permanently unflyable and they had no way to tow it back to shore. <laughs> oh, but it's worth it. What do you lose yeah, a plane no, and you save 56 guys it. It's though, just yeah. like, it is funny. It's like, well, there goes the plane. Yeah. Of the men the ships were able to rescue, nearly all suffered from dehydration, malnutrition, and hypernatremia. Hypernatremia is a condition where the body has extreme amounts of excess sodium in the blood and can be fatal. That sounds awful. Yep. I don't it, even know what that would feel like. I, yeah, I don't know. It's believed that many of the survivors who passed away in the ocean but had not been injured or attacked may have died of hypernatremia. They were also sun damaged from exposure during the day and some had hypothermia, from the extreme cold during the night. Again. You cannot win. <laughs> we are not meant to be there. No. We are not. We're barely meant to be outside. There's like. No. There's like one region in the entire world where humans can exist comfortably. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's it. Yeah. And that's on land. Yeah. And that's not <laughs> that's most like, people. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like most people anywhere are not going to exist well. Yeah. On top of all of this, the survivors who had been forced to float in the oil slick of the wreckage suffered from desquamation. Mm. Oh, this is disgusting. Oh. Hey, this next, like, 10 seconds is uh, <laughs> a little graphic. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's not fun, so hit that forward button if you need to. Essentially, layers of their skin had begun to peel off, exposing them to abrasive salt water. Some of these men's skin had been burning and peeling off for four straight days. Oh, my God. Because you're soaking in salt water for four full days. So, basically, uh... Your skin becomes pudding that you can peel off and then expose to more salt water. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not doing okay. Reports following the rescue also recorded that some men had taken their own lives, believing it to be the better alternative to the sharks and the elements. That's a, that is a tough situation a to yeah, be in. Yeah. Upon rescuing the survivors, hundreds of sharks were spotted in the water, and the death toll from shark attacks is believed to be as high as 150 sailors. Of the 900 men believed to be alive following the explosion aboard the Indianapolis, only 316 men survived. That's low. Within five days, 75% of the Indianapolis's crew of almost 1,300 men were dead, and the former pride of the fleet lay at the bottom of the ocean. Three days after being pulled from the water, their payload would be detonated over Hiroshima. Oh, okay. Yes, that makes sense. For some reason, it in my mind, it was shipped there, taken off, and immediately, immediately put dropped. into the air. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. Once wow. the wreck was discovered, the Navy was furious. FDR was still on board! <laughs> yeah. 
The port where they were supposed to have arrived in the Philippines kept a board where they plotted all the planned arrivals. However, for large ships like the Indy, it was assumed that they arrived on time unless reported otherwise. Uh, hmm. So no one said, no one's checking hey, that this ship. ship came in, so they just assumed it had. Or no one said, yeah, okay, whatever. Their predictions and timelines were based on projections, not accurate positioning data. On July 31st, when the Indianapolis was planned to arrive, it was removed from the board of planned arrivals. This resulted in multiple people reporting that the ship had in fact arrived in the Philippines as planned. It's, a miscommunication is an amazing phenomenon to behold. Yes. Because it, it, such amazing uh, amounts of information can be just completely, uh, can just be completely neglected. Yeah. Or made up. Because it's just, yeah, and I imagine somebody's like, oh, yeah. It's not my job. It happened, and everyone's like, okay, yeah, I guess. Well, this guy said that they came in, so like, they're I guess, here. I mean, like, there's a lot of ships here. I mean, yeah. how am I supposed to know which ones are here and which ones are not? Yeah. You know? Specifically, Lieutenant Stuart B. Gibson was found to have been notified that the ship had not arrived, but he did not report it or investigate it. He was reprimanded following the rescue, and his supervisor received a letter of admonition. Justice served. <laughs> yeah, take, take care of that. <laughs> Charles McVeigh III was the captain of the Indianapolis and had been since the year before. He was one of the 316 to survive the sinking of the ship just in time for him to be court-martialed after being rescued. Uh, mm, Yeah. I, mm, okay. Not sure what he could have done. I mean, they just wanted to blame someone. Sounds like it, yeah. The two charges were failing to order his men to abandon ship and hazarding the ship by failing to zigzag, which is kind of nonsense. The torpedoes hit the ship so fast that there was no time to zigzag or evade them. And I think, like, you're meant to maybe go in a zigzag in anticipation of a torpedo. I'm not really sure. Are you sure. supposed to zigzag the whole trip to the Philippines? That's what I don't know. I, maybe. That seems like a long, <laughs> it's like yeah, a long yeah. trip. These are big ships. But I, I know that is, like, a tactic that is used, but I'm not sure... Yeah, if it's like the whole trip is meant to be sort of a zigzag. Do you or think if maybe he yeah. zagged when he should have zigged? I think that might be the problem. A number of controversial details emerged during the hearings. Namely, that the Navy may have already known that Hashimoto's submarine was in the area, but did not inform McVeigh. Additionally, his orders concerning zigzagging were vague. <laughs> okay. Mochitsuru Hashimoto was actually called in to testify. Yeah. Huh. Oh, yeah, because the, I mean, the war the was, war was over. about over. Yeah, yeah. And supported McVeigh. By saying that zigzagging would have made no difference. That is, man, how do you get your head around that one? Ultimately, McVeigh was returned to active duty and retired a few years later in 1949 as a rear admiral. While the Navy determined McVeigh wasn't at fault, some of the sailors' families felt differently. For years, he received hate mail regarding his part in the tragedy until he died by suicide in 1968, consumed by the guilt over the men lost at sea. This is... And this is real mail. Yeah, this, this isn't is, a DM this mail this that you get in a mailbox. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's horrible. I like the families. Obviously, are that's a nightmare. Yeah, that's, you know, it's that's bad a bad. All around. It's a bad way for a loved one to die. It, they did not have but, the information, I suppose. And even if they did, I don't think it's a rational thought that you're just looking. I'm sure looking for somebody to to yeah, aim your yeah, your yeah. grief at because, yeah. I mean, like. It's wartime, like a lot of people died, but oh my god, this one's... <laughs> yeah. Wow. The Indianapolis stayed at the bottom of the ocean until 2001, when it was believed to have been discovered via sonar and underwater cameras mounted on a remote-operated submersible. The evidence was inconclusive, and subsequent investigations were launched in 2005, 2016, and 2017. The 2017 expedition was finally successful in photographing and mapping out the wreck, 
including the impact craters from the torpedoes. Since 1960, the survivors have held yearly reunions. As of September 29th, 2022, Harold Bray is the only remaining crew member still alive. So there you have it. The Indianapolis. Yeah. I knew about this story. Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, it's, it's, I it's out there. It's but in I the, didn't know yeah. the story. Not yeah. in whole. And it is... This is, this, is, this is a rough one. Yeah. And these were... I mean, like, you hear, like... Right, you hear... 12 or 1300 men, right? Mm -hmm. 18 year olds, 18 to 22. Yeah, children, essentially. Children, basically. These are like barely not teenagers. And Mm -hmm. and damn, (laughs) I am just, wow. And now also, you know, it's especially sad in Jaws. Quint survived that. (laughs) And and then that's how it goes. To think that Quint survived the Indianapolis only to be uh, taken by a shark aboard aboard his beloved. uh, I don't remember the name of the ship. The hell's the name of the ship from Jaws? so farewell and adieu the orca. to ye fair the orca. Spanish ladies. Mm-hmm. I do want to read this one quote from Harold Bray, the, uh, the last remaining survivor. Then the sharks came. I looked down and they were just swarming around us. Their tails would hit me every once in a while. There wasn't really anywhere to go. We had to deal with them. The sharks seemed to go after the people that had big cuts to them, were naked, or just in their skivvies. We lost a lot of good men in those first few days. Oh, that's bad. How do you go back to like a normal? How do you go home to like your wife? I, <laughs> after I, that. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You're changed. Yeah. I come back yeah. from a camping yeah. trip and I don't want to talk to anybody. And that's <laughs> right. when it goes well. And you almost never have to contend with predators. No. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, it's not quite the same. Yeah. So anyway, that's the Indianapolis one of the most horrifying uh, shipwrecks. It might be the most horrifying. It might be. We've well, we've covered some really horrifying ones, but this one's definitely up there in the pantheon of a horrific uh, just the, subject matter. It's just the amount of shit that keeps coming. So much suffering. It, it, okay, three hundred men are dead instantly, and the ship is gone. Well, this is pretty bad. No one knows where you are now, and no one knows where you are. Hang on a second. Wait a minute. <laughs> I have a swarm of sharks. Okay. You thought that wasn't bad enough? Sodium and oil are peeling off your skin. Yeah. It, now, it's just a... You're also yeah. getting sunburn during the day and hypothermia, and hypothermia during the night. Yeah. And this happens for four cycles. Yep. And then you're being rescued, but there's no more room inside the plane. So we're going to tie you to the wing. Also, you have to imagine... <laughs> I don't know. I I imagine there was like at least one group of survivors that were just... Not found. Because it's like, you're dealing with ocean yeah. currents out there. They could have been, like, miles, miles away yeah, that, at that point. You're, tr- you're right. You're right. It's 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 really disconcerting. Uh, and there's not really any way, I don't think, to have good records of that. I mean, there's no way they would know if some group floated away. I mean, they know that they never got rescued. <laughs> yeah, they, but, they would have known yeah. that. That's true. Uh, wow. Okay. Anyway. Uh, this is also, I would say, one of our most oft-requested topics so yeah. I, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this deep dive. Uh, Paige did a great job of exploring all the kind of context for it. We've never yeah, yeah. tried a multi-part episode before, but we were really excited to. And this seemed like uh, kind of the natural choice, given that it was already our uh, our final episode of the season. Yeah. Uh, there was just so much to it to split it up. And, uh, I, I, and I do hope <laughs> uh, y- you've enjoyed listening to it. 
Uh, it's it feels weird to say. I hope you enjoyed our recounting of untold suffering yeah. at the hands of bull sharks. May your skin <laughs> stay on your bones. That's our new. <laughs> may your, yeah, may your bones be still uh, covered in you. <laughs> I guess. Anyway, can I get a foghorn? Charlotte, what's scarier than sharks? Dolls. Whales. Oh. A lesson the Portuguese are learning the hard way. Okay. <laughs> Tell me more. The Portuguese have been way too uh, brazen <laughs> in their dealing with whales now these has, last uh, 2,000 years. I don't know. Now has come the day of the whale. Yeah. So orcas, or as you may know them, killer whales. I do know that. Have apparently been sinking sailboats left and right off the coast of Spain and Portugal for about two years now. Really? This started up during the pandemic. I imagine they were well, kind of... Well, we all took on new hobbies. Exactly, exactly. You started Which, okay. skating again. It's funny you say that because apparently this is a hobby. Oh! Yeah, we'll get into it, but this is like... It, it's bizarre. We'll talk. So these are sailboats, like personal sailboats or yachts or whatever, but... Sure, yeah. Not, they're not like huge ships or anything, obviously. No, not like ours. No. So the orcas ram the boats with a particular affinity for the rudder, mm-hmm. uh, and because they are, you know, generally smaller personal sailing vessels, they are not built to defend whale, from whale attacks, like most ships are. Uh, yeah. That, that, <laughs> like most commercial vessels. Uh, that tracks. Yeah. Uh, and then the boat sinks. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't find, I don't think anyone's died from this. That's good. Because they tend to not be like, I don't think they're like too far out and they all have radios. They're able yeah. to get like people out there. And the ship is, it's not like the ship is gone in a second. It's a slow right. sinking. But yeah. In one incident, an orca rammed a boat for 15 minutes. It, <laughs> Kind of went back and forth between sides of the boat and would try the front. At one point, it even lifted the back of the boat out of the water until it kind of got bored and swam off. <laughs> David Lusso, a professor of marine sustainability, said, quote, Local scientists who have worked with killer whales in this region for more than two decades have had closer looks at incidents, and so far, I think it is fair to say that we do not know why these accidents and attacks are happening. Oh. There's nothing scarier than an expert saying... I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We uh, don't know. The le- the professor is reported as saying, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Why are you asking me? Yeah. Anyway, this is my favorite part of it. Jared Towers, the director of Bay Cytology in British Columbia, thinks that it is a kind of game that younger orcas are playing. <laughs> he notes that these games go in and out of style with orcas. It's a fad. It's a fad. Okay. I mean, possibly. You know, I we hope. Well, apparently the current fad, aside from sinking ships, is uh, playing with like crab nets or like crab and lobster. I the, get like, it. The bo- but that's like hot with orcas right now, I guess. That's really big for orcas yeah. right now. Young um, orca. Well, that's the thing. It is young orcas because yeah. eventually they grow up and have to like, the males have to hunt. Work at SeaWorld. Oh, <laughs> work right. at SeaWorld. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of them work at SeaWorld. Yeah. And regarding these orca games, Towers gave an example from the 1990s. Quote, They'd kill fish and just swim around with this fish on their head. <laughs> we just don't see that anymore. <laughs> Talking about it like like uh like flared jeans. Well, that, we like, just yeah, don't that's see that. Swimming anymore. around with the dead fish on your head, the Jinko jeans of Orca society. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, we used to yep. we used to all we would go out and have our fun, we would kill a fish and put it on our head. The kids and that just was don't, good. And it now was, and now and there's low. kids out here sinking boats. There's kids out here sinking. We used I don't to, get it. We used to know what was good, what was fun, <laughs> and nobody got hurt except for the fish we killed. Everything comes too easy now. <laughs> these young orcas, they just they see these boats and they think they're entitled to them. Yeah. 
Every, anyway. Every young orca gets a participation fit. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's season three. That's season three. Uh, a really, like, uh, cute honorable mention, I think, was much needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also related to uh, creatures who are far more in their element than than we uh, teaching us about our place in the that's true. natural order of things. Uh, but being human, we will not learn oh, the, no. the the lesson that is meant to be imparted by this and instead build even stronger there, Portuguese rudders. There was a quote that was like, you hear about it all the time, but you're not scared. <laughs> like, maybe you should be. I don't you know. You should probably be I mean, a look, little bit you scared. Like, yeah, yeah, everything can kill you, and the chances of this actually happening are probably pretty low, but it would give me pause if I was in Portugal and someone said, would you like to go out on my sailboat? Yes. I would say, mm, mm. Do you like? I, do you have a radio? Do you have a raft? You got all that? <laughs> you got the proper whale precautions? Hearing about the one whale and going, ah, this neighborhood, it's gone to hell. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, follow us, Ship Hits Pod, on... Uh, Twitter, Instagram, yeah. uh, TikTok. I gotta, we got, you know what? Let's post one of those, a couple of those ones we have shot. Sure. Yeah, you know, I keep remembering we have to do that. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to season three. It has been written by Brian Garr, then Paige Wesley. It's edited by Kelly Reynolds and Nick Schwartz. The art is by Stevie Hogan at Mortar Maid. Uh, yeah. We, uh, we are looking forward to more. We've got really fun interstitials planned. Uh, one in particular I think we're especially excited about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. Uh, and then we are we're, we have a meeting on the calendar to plan out the next season. <laughs> and the meeting was uh, four, three days ago. They we didn't care. have it, but they it was on the calendar. Okay. Never mind then. Anyway, I'm, I'm actually out here hoping that your bones bleach in these sands. Me How too. How about that? Bye, everybody. See ya. Bye.